Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Would you join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for allowing us to come and meditate on your word and what it means to say your kingdom come. Uh, Lord, we are really seeking your will when we pray this, that you would guide us in a world that is so torn apart by violence and evil in our hearts and in the world. And so we ask that as we pray this, as we learn to pray this better, that you would be with us and that you would be glorified and we would be strengthened by your word. And in your son's name we ask, amen. Would you be seated? Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this prayer really asks God to act. It pleads with God to enter into our circumstances and that he would bring about his good rule and his will in our lives. And even in the lives of people that we consider our enemies. And so this prayer seeks God's will in a day where the world is filled often with warfare. And we're asking God to end that to bring justice to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and bring justice to the oppressed, that he would comfort those who mourn, and that he would even create a new heavens and a new earth. That is what we are praying. Um, Jesus' prayer guides us to a world where heaven and earth seem to be so far apart, where wars are still fought, the poor still experience injustice, the brokenhearted still suffer, people are still in captive to sin, death, and hell, and we are surrounded by abusive social structures in this world that exploit the weak. Communities still mourn And it seems like the people of God are so few and far between. And you and I are still sinners. And in all of this, God seems like he's distant and uninvolved in our lives. But when we pray this prayer, we remind ourselves that God is acting. He's involved in the world, and he's giving us a kingdom. We're not building it. He's giving us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Every single Lord's Day as we come to worship. And so this prayer is asking what God wills, that his glory would fill the whole world. This prayer teaches us how to bend our lives slowly to God's kingdom and to what he is doing in the world right now. And so as we look at what we mean when we pray God's kingdom come, we're going to look at three things this morning. First, we see at Christianity that God's kingdom, as Rob mentioned, is, a, is about ultimate allegiance. It's first about ultimate allegiance. Secondly, it's about a different kind of power. It's a subversive view of power in this world. And third, that it has different boundaries or borders. So first, God's kingdom is about ultimate allegiance. Um, when we talk about God's kingdom and we use those words like king and kingship, 
and we hear other passages where Paul talks about our citizenship being in heaven, we really forget how the idea of the kingdom is really political. It's a very political word. And because we don't have kingdoms or kings around us in our democracy, this, this word, the power of this word, really gets lost on us. But it would have been utterly striking to the ancient world, to the Jews, and to the Gentiles in the, in the empire of Rome. It would have been like this bombshell going off. And so in some sense, we can say that, that politics has crept into our prayer at this moment. Um, at this point in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is mentioning all these different things. He's talking about God and heaven and holiness. And then suddenly he starts mentioning this kingdom. And then we're being transferred into this new place where all of our old allegiances are being called into question. And the kingdom is very confusing. I think it could be a very confusing thing for us today. If you just go through the Gospels, the disciples that were around Jesus were just constantly misunderstanding what Jesus meant about what it meant to be a disciple. And if that was true 2,000 years ago, how much more is that true today? Um, When Jesus gives us this prayer, he's not saying, Lord, bless our nation. He doesn't say that. We're not saying, Lord, protect our family. Um, we're We're saying here that the kingdom, all of a sudden we see move to very specific, ordinary, mundane things. If you remember as we read it, it all of a sudden starts talking about our daily bread and then our daily relationships and how we forgive one another. Uh, that's, that is what the kingdom of God is really about. Having heaven injected into those very mundane, ordinary things like how we eat our food. And that sounds really strange when you put it in that kind of context because in our day it's very common to want to be spiritual but not religious. Um, Where we think politics, our relationships, our pocketbooks, our freedoms and our lifestyles are ours. You know, those things, our happiness, are things over here. And then God and religion and spirituality are things that totally don't mix. Those things are private. Those things are inside of us, and never the two shall meet. Um, But Christianity, Jesus is saying that the kingdom is very materialistic. Not in a bad sense where we're worshiping and having idols out of things, but our religion isn't against our embodiedness isn't against being human, isn't against our physicality. Being human is not the problem. And our goal on Sunday as we come and worship is not to fill us up with so much spiritual hot air that we just float away like a Buddhist monk transcending this world. Um, That's not the goal. Our goal is to teach you to pray in such a way that every material matter on earth that you go through that everything you go through in every moment of every day is deeply spiritual. God is deeply concerned about all of those things. And so Jesus doesn't come 
bringing up this, this, this prayer, urging us just to think about him or feel differently about him in this disembodied spirit being kind of way. Um, we're not what Yoda says, like in Star Wars, it says that we're just these crude, we're not these crude beings of matter, we're beings of light. No, the Bible has no idea or no concept of that. Um, God's kingdom is about heaven coming down to earth and intruding into our lives. So Jesus is coming and he's inviting us into this kingdom and the very means that the Bible says he does that, that he shows his kingdom on earth, is that he went around healing people. He went around casting out demons out of people's bodies. Healing people of their physical problems. You know, if, I, if those things didn't matter, if our physical bodies didn't matter, he wouldn't have done that. Jesus would have come and been like, oh yeah, your bodies aren't very real. You know, you just have to transcend those things, transcend your biology, and just, that's how you're going to get rid of pain in this life. No, he came out casting out demons and feeding people. And that's how we know the kingdom of God is among us. That's why Mark then says in his gospel, therefore, repent and believe because the good news of the kingdom has come upon you. And I think in our day that those things, it's hard to bring those things together because our secular society wants us to think that we can neatly separate our lives, that we can separate how we deal with Jesus and religion and spirituality over here from our public life, from our public desires. And I think part of the problem is that our society convinces us that we can just be religiously neutral as we kind of go through our daily lives during the week. Um, but every society is constantly making claims about what matters, what ultimately matters and what brings happiness to us. They're always enforcing a certain vision or dream of the good life. And our specific society tells us that those things can happen, that we can have a good life apart from God. And you know, I think that's, that's actually what makes that makes the Christian life so difficult in our day as we think about, as we think about it, because we think that we can hold on to our own stories, that we can hold on to our own stories of happiness while giving our souls to Jesus. I am, every day I go out and I forget all about what God has said, I go out and I try with all my might to serve God and be happy apart from him. I try to serve God and this present age. And that's what makes the Christian life seem so impossible in our day. It just doesn't make sense. It seems so difficult. And C.S. Lewis had this great way of putting it. He said, the terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self all your wishes and precautions to Christ. But it's far easier than what we are all trying to do instead. What we are trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves. To keep personal happiness as our great aim in life and at the same time be good. 
We are all trying to let our mind and our heart go their own one way, centered on money and pleasure or ambition, and then hoping in spite of that to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. But that is exactly what Christ warned us that we could not do. He said that a thistle cannot produce figs. If I am to be a field that contains nothing but grass seed, I can't produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but I I still will only produce grass and no wheat. If I want to produce wheat, the the change must go deeper than the surface. I must be plowed up and re-sown. And I think that that's constantly what we're struggling with. We're constantly, maybe on a good day, on the best of days, wanting to give 99% of ourselves to Jesus and hold on with a death grip to 1%. Hold on to those things and think that we can do that without tearing ourselves apart. And if we're honest, this is, that's what exhausts us. That was, that's what makes the Christianity seem so impossible. Um, and that's what we fear. We really fear, at the end of the day, letting go of ourselves. We really fear trusting that God is good and resting in Him. Isn't that it? Like, that's, that's it. I, it's like, I have to hold on to this one thing because, you know, God may be, you know, He's good. I understand that He died for me. But I really can't entrust Him with my whole life because he, He's not going to be good. He's not going to provide. And so some mornings we, we wake up with this tension in our lives. Um, we can hide in our rooms, wrestling with our sheets and our pillows, with tears streaming down our face. No wishing that this wasn't how the story had to go. Like how many days are like that? Um, but it's in those very moments, in those deep pits and those valleys and those shadows that that's where God's grace actually is. Uh, it's in those moments that if we would stop and listen and instead of reaching for our Instagram or our phones, we could actually hear Jesus crying out to us. And, and he says, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Oh, man. If we push through those valleys, those valleys of fear and shadows of death, we can find that Jesus is right there ready to lift us up. Your endless striving to find your true self can be over. You don't have to battle that. That's not for you to do. God gives it to you. Your warfare is over. That strife and that striving is over. And your iniquity is pardoned. You can stop and rest and find yourself in God. That Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can fear no evil because you are with me. That Jesus is preparing a table for us in the presence of our own enemies, which so often is ourselves. 
And so that is God's kingdom. In those very moments, that is God's kingdom that he's giving to you right now. Today, you're receiving it. Right now in worship, before anything else, you are coming and receiving from God. You're not coming and giving him your best life now. Um, That will never turn out well. You're coming to receive what you could never do for yourself. And it's only then that we can actually find ourselves again. And that calls for a response because of what God has done. It calls for this response that we call repentance and faith. Um, This decision that we call repentance is that we are now a part of a kingdom that that is not the kingdoms of this world. Jesus says in order to live, you must give yourself away. Die with me at the cross, he says. Be buried with me in your baptism and give me your allegiance alone. And that, at the nitty, where the real nitty-gritty, where the rubber meets the road, is where sin stops having its grip on us. When we can just rest and let go. And so faith and repentance isn't just this idea. It isn't just this emotion. It isn't just a doctrine. Even though it includes all those things. It's a concrete reality that Jesus is bringing you into something that seems so out of step with this whole world. God has come in Jesus, and therefore we can repent. Therefore we can change and let go of ourselves and have all these old citizenships and these old kingdoms be washed away to believe this good news that we've joined this revolution in Jesus. And so that's why faith and repentance is really about ultimate allegiance. It's bowing the knee to Jesus alone and saying that he alone is Lord. All of these things would have been so revolutionary in the ancient world, and I think they are today. To say that we're bowing the knee to Jesus and not Caesar or any president or any pharaoh or even your own or my own vision of happiness That's radical. Um, And so Christianity is always forever mixing politics and religion because it's introducing this radically new, different view of our relationship to each other and, and to power and how we understand power in this world. Which brings us to our second point. So we've seen that God's kingdom is about ultimate allegiance, but it's also about this different subversive understanding of power and how we even operate in this world. Christian prayer is very, very political. To the credit of the rulers of Jesus' own day, they had the good sense to look at Jesus and see that what he is doing was big trouble for them. If you look at the life of Herod or any of the rulers of Jesus' day, what happens when Jesus comes on the scene? It says that all of Jerusalem trembled with Herod. He was frightened. He, he knew, and he had been in office long enough, to know that Jesus was a huge threat to his rule in this tiny baby in Bethlehem. Everything in his kingdom was being put into peril. And so what did Herod do? 
He responds like every single ruler of this present evil age. When they feel threatened, they tear babies from their mothers and they kill with violence. That's how you know it's the kingdom of this world. When they think that violence and retribution are equated with justice, that they pursue their power through those very things, through outrage and burning social outcasts, whether conservative or liberal. That's the way they maintain power. Always looking for a scapegoat. Um, for my job during the week, I work on social media as a manager, and I just like, every day, I'm like watching, and every day, every day it's like a witch hunt. It's like, who can we crucify now? And that's just like what I see every day. And like, that's probably the worst of it all in society, packed into social media. Um, but that's, that's what we do to maintain power. That's what Herod did. He calls out this army and he massacres all these Jewish baby boys in Bethlehem. His power was challenged. And so in praying this prayer that your kingdom come, we are in this power struggle that can become violent because the kingdoms of this world never want to give up their power without a fight. In Jesus' earthly ministry, if you remember back, one of the first things that happened is that he, in his earthly ministry, before he even began a sermon, he goes out and he's confronted by Satan himself. And he offers him complete political power, religious power, and economic power, control of the world, And Satan offers him this. He offers him glory and the good life through these very means. If what happened? If Jesus would only bow down to Satan and worship him, give him adoration, and maybe just a little allegiance. You know, he doesn't really have to do everything, but maybe just a little allegiance, and Jesus would have it set. And Satan really has that actual power to give to anyone. He's the ruler and the principality of power of this age. And the kingdoms of this world are in his pocket, which he controls through the fear of death, through vengeance and retribution. It's like the ultimate Game of Thrones on steroids. That's what Satan's game is at. Satan said, if you only worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered and said, It is written, Worship and serve the God, your God only. And I think we easily run over that and we miss what's happening. Satan offered him really good things. Peace. Political peace from all enemies. Control of borders. The, the Pax Romana, as they called it. The peace of empire. Glory. How? Through the means of religious morality, political control, bread, economics, tradition. But that is exactly why Jesus had to say no. The real kingdom, the kingdom of glory, the good life that we all desperately are searching for every day, that cannot come through those means. He had to refuse the kingdoms of this world, how they define power, And that's really what it means to be a Christian. That we have a radically different view of power than the world. 
our power, this new kingdom that Jesus is ushering in, is radically defined by self-sacrifice. It's radically defined by forgiveness, reconciliation, not by violence or coercion. And that is something that the story of, of Jesus is constantly showing us how subversive that is. To be part of this kingdom is a question about what we worship, where our allegiance is pledged to, and how we are really aliens and pilgrims in this world. That the very means that we live in this world is subversive. And that undermines every, every age that Christians live in every political regime that exists, whether liberal or conservative. Being a part of the kingdom is about that ultimate allegiance. Another way to think about it is that it's asking the question about what we think ultimately counts in this life. What are you and I willing to sacrifice for? It's another way of thinking about it. What are we willing to die for and give our daily lives for, and work for, and maybe sacrifice our children for? What evils are we, allow, are we willing to overlook? What are we willing to overlook for our vision of freedom to continue? So that our meaning, our purpose in life isn't stopped. And you know that both conservative right and liberal left have their ways of doing that, creating a culture of death that overlooks all kinds of things in order for their power to be maintained. And God's kingdom is coming in and it's opposing all of that. He's claiming all our lives, not just Sunday. God isn't interested in Sunday-only Christians. He's not interested in your head and not your heart. He's not interested in your head and not your wallet. God is interested in claiming our whole lives and people who are sold out in allegiance to him. If we think we can segregate our lives into these nice little categories, that's really where we know we've been actually secularized. That's a different way to think about it. Even if we believe the right things in our very traditional, if we think that our personality, our lifestyles are immune from God's radical call of discipleship. But in praying, in praying your kingdom come, we are bucking that trend in our own hearts. We're saying we can't serve two masters, as Jesus said. The only path to the good life that we were actually made for is every day in small ways, whether it's in our bread or in our relationships, handing ourselves over to Jesus, giving ourselves over to God every day as if we had never done it before. It has to begin all over again. Tomorrow when I wake up, I have to do it all over again because um, I'm going to start. I'm going to go try to look for my own kingdom tomorrow morning or maybe even as I walk and go to the beach today. Like, it's just that simple. Like, okay, that's great. I heard what he said, and now I have to go and really live life and 
You know, it's a great high, you know, pie in the sky to think we can be all about self-sacrifice and love. But now we have to get down to the nitty-gritty, and we know that the world operates by retribution and violence. Um, it's so easy for me to just get like that. Okay, these people on social media, they need to be taught a lesson. Um, someone is wrong on the internet. And that's just like very easy for us to do. Giving ourselves over to God every day in the small things. Saying, God, I don't know why I feel so anxious, but I'm giving this to you. God, I don't know why I struggle with the same sins over and over and over again, but I'm just going to give this to you, even if I don't know why. I don't know what to do. Lord, you know how evil my boss is or my parents are, but you're in control of every pharaoh and their heart is in your hands. God, take my life and help me give myself away. We have to pray, Lord, my child is running away in disobedience. I don't know what to do. I know that they're just on loan to me. God, I don't trust that this marriage is going to work out, but I know I can't live for my own desires according to my own happiness. And even as we sang, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's as simple as it is, but it's so radical. It's so radical. Why? Because our, our heart's desires, the things that we want to go after, those things will crush us. No one here is meant to be the God of their own life. You can't bear that weight. But giving ourselves away to God and his kingdom, that's where true freedom actually starts coming. And true joy is entering into our lives even in the midst of those pains and those sorrows and the sins of life, we can have joy because it includes in its arms the arms of resurrection. And so we pray this prayer asking that we die to our self-sufficiency and our control and manipulation of others. In praying this, we, we empty of ourselves out of our own political manipulation of our bosses and our coworkers and our spouses and boyfriends and girlfriends and see others as Christ did. Are you weary? Give yourself to Jesus and learn of Him. The author Eugene Peterson had this great way of, of saying it. He said that the gospel of Jesus Christ is more political than anyone imagines but in a way that no one guesses. I just love that. Because it's political in all the opposite ways that we imagine. And we think that, and we look and see that Jesus is bringing this kingdom and he's turning away all the people that we think should be at the party. He's turning away the rich young ruler who's very traditional and moral. He's bringing a kingdom that turns everything on its head where God is a God of the oppressed. He's a God of the downtrodden, the God of the immigrant, the God of the oppressed people and the slaves. He's the God who responded to violence by coming with humility, letting us do to him what our hearts desired. That's how far his love went for us. He gave us our heart's desires. And that's what happens is we, we crucify people. When we push comes to shove, when we see God conflicting with our kingdom. But he loved us so much 
And he knew that the only way out, the only way that we could stop this game of violence and retribution was his death. His death for us. And it's through that he overturns oppression. It's through that he's, what he's starting to do in his church when we pray your kingdom come is he's turning upside down the whole world's view of power. And that's why Jesus seems so, so crazy. C.S. Lewis had it right that if we don't think that he's crazy at some point in our lives, then we might not really be reading him right. We might not be seeing what he's actually doing. Because he, our whole understanding of power, is being turned upside down by God's grace. He's flipping it on its head. And there's no middle ground in his kingdom. He's drawing this new map with new boundaries. God is doing that. Which brings us to our last point for, the, for this morning, that God is, his kingdom has different boundaries. His kingdom has different borders. All the kingdoms of this world have boundary markers. All the kingdoms of this world have ways of establishing how they're in control and setting those boundaries. If we think about it, politics and kingdoms is really about boundary making. What is the vision of the good life that this community is dedicated to sacrifice and die for? What is the vision that we're willing to sacrifice for and what our ultimate allegiance is, as we mentioned? And so Jesus is coming and he's sending boundary markers that don't make sense, that aren't based on our gender or our class, our race or economics, or what accent we have. No, Jesus is coming and his boundary marker is baptism. His boundary marker is baptism. Paul says that as many of you have been baptized into Christ, you've been clothed with Christ, and there's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. This is God, his weird way of actually breaking his kingdom into this world. Baptism is Christian initiation. The Lord's Supper is our Pledge of Allegiance. And the Lord's Prayer is our national anthem. To be a Christian is to be adopted into this holy nation, this holy kingdom of God. So all those old labels that cause so much grief, what kind of music we listen to, which divides us into tribes, whether we're male or female, we're rich or poor, from California or Ohio or New Jersey, New York, whatever it is, those things are washed away. Not by saying those divisions don't matter or mean anything, but they all have been relativized. They've all been subordinated to this new citizenship that we have. So those distinctions, those differences, those beautiful things that make us all different, they aren't erased. All of them are being used for a different goal, for a different purpose, for a different view of glory and happiness from what this world wants. So our goal, you know, me being white, is now different than what the world's power system wants it to be. Our race divisions, our ethnic divisions, 
our economy and class differences are now being brought under and subordinated to this new goal of God's love. God is causing us to participate in this new kingdom, not of debt or violence or retribution, but of grace. We are in this economy of grace where the poor have the, have the seat of honor in the church, where they can actually bless us by us living for them. That's so bizarre. Um, Jesus said as much in the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That's like coming into America and saying, Blessed are the unemployed. Blessed are those who are suffering terminal illness, who are going through marital problems, who suffer from gender dysphoria, or being buried under student debt. What? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. And all of these beatitudes aren't commands. They're all blessings. They're indicatives, indicating what is reality. Jesus is holding up his hands like Pastor Rob does at the end of the service. He's saying, hashtag blessed. He's like, not if you do these things, you'll be blessed. He does not, he's not saying that. No, those who mourn, you are blessed. You are part of this kingdom right now if you weep at night, if you have problems in your marriage. Jesus is saying, you're blessed. You're fortunate. You're lucky. You have a place at this table, a place at the kingdom, because Jesus has purchased that for you. All of these people that we think have problems, that are problems, they have a seat of honor at this table. If you're unemployed, people in this country, they will treat you like you have a disease. Um, they don't want to catch what you have. You know, if you're homeless, or if your marriage is a failure, or if you had a divorce. That doesn't sound very blessed, Jesus. What are you talking about? But is that it's exactly the kind of people that Jesus is sitting with at his kingdom, the tax collectors and the sinners. And if you're sitting with him, you are feasting with him. Your itch and addiction to exact vengeance on others is being taken away. Jesus is taking that away and giving you joy. It's yours. Here it is. You don't have to just well this up with inside of you. He's giving it to you as a gift. You are taking the Lord's Supper with him. That's the demarcation line of this kingdom. Even if you're at home wrestling with the devil, wrestling with your pillow and your sheets, Jesus is saying this is not how the story has to go. You have a new destiny. And so, are you a part of this kingdom? Jesus says, well, are you baptized? Have you been sprinkled in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And this just like leaves us with a question, why? Why does God do this? Um, this seems so crazy. Because at the right time, when we're most vulnerable, most weak, most unable to help ourselves, that's when Christ died for us. That's when Christ's grace 
shines through your weaknesses in your marriage, shines through your weaknesses through your job and unemployment or homelessness. All the things that this world wants to hold us down and oppress us by, God is saying, my grace is sufficient. He's shining through all those wonderful differences that we all have and using it for his kingdom. And so in conclusion, inclusion of this morning, repenting, this allegiance to Jesus, leaning into God's kingdom, is learning to push away just slowly with our slight prayers of help my unbelief. We're pushing away anything that's false pleasure, anything that's false power, everything that's false intimacy, and clinging to Jesus. Maybe with all the strength we can muster, and it might not be that much that day. Because he has brought us into true friendship with God, true intimacy with him and with each other. Jesus' kingdom, Jesus' kingdom is inviting all of us with people we would never normally associate with because we look at each other as if we're leprous. But Jesus is doing that because he's invited us to this party. We've been claimed out of Satan's enemy territory, out of evil and death. And as we heard in the gospel reading, we've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so when we pray your kingdom come, we're coming to worship. We're coming to worship realizing that God's kingdom in its fullness has not yet come. But we're starting it now. We're seeing the glimmers of that shine through our life. We're committing our allegiance to God again and again because he's committed himself to us. The joy that God has made us for is beginning even now. Praying your kingdom come is saying, Lord, let let us be living, breathing evidences of what you're doing in the world, that you've not abandoned it, that God has wrestled us from the forces of evil and death, from vengeance and party politics, and he reclaims you for that very purpose. He reclaims you today. What What a reason to say, your kingdom come. Would you join with me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all the things that you teach us about your kingdom and how, how difficult it is to let go of ourselves, our own stories, to trust. But you promise, Lord, that you are so humble of heart that you will lead us even in the darkest of times to the joy that you have prepared for us because at the right time you died for us. And so it's in your Son's name that we ask that we would go out in the recognition that we are blessed. Amen.